Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. This Encore Podcast was previously posted on November 30th, 2019. My guest is Taya Albrecht, whose latest novel is Inland. The earlier novel is The Tiger's Wife. Both novels have gotten rave reviews. And this one is a Western novel. I read that when you first came over to America, you're from originally Serbia with stops in other places. Mm-hmm. When you first came over here and you saw the Wild West, it changed you. Is that right? It really, really did. And I, I had grown up with Westerns, with sort of the typical cowboy Westerns, because my grandparents were fans. This was in Belgrade. I was born in the former Yugoslavia back when it was still that country. And when the war started, uh, we left and went to Cyprus and Egypt and eventually ended up here. I think that the mythos of the um, the cowboy Western of the American West is really, really powerful and, and quite, you know, has international scope. I knew a lot of the real history. And when I came over, I thought that I would, you know, go to the Mountain West and the Southwest and sort of find it interesting and sort of have all kinds of conflicting feelings about it, which turned out to be true because I went there and was completely blown away and had this deep, deep sense of homecoming, which is very strange because I have no family there. I have no cultural connection. You know, there's no roots. But I felt homesick for it all the time. Whenever I would leave, I would feel very homesick for it and get the sort of call back of home, which was strange because that had never happened to me in relationship to place. It had happened with respect to people. But because we moved around so much, I had never felt especially connected to a place. And so I I wanted to explore that feeling. And so I started researching, you know, researching the American West, researching stories. So this happened after Tiger's Wife? And that was 2011. That was a while ago. And you had no idea what you were going to do, except you you were thinking of writing a Western? So I had written a novel in the interim, which was sort of a, a, an attempt to bridge certain aspects of Balkan history with some other thing that I was trying to create. And it, it just didn't work at all. It didn't coalesce. And then I went to the West and, and started thinking about it and realizing, well, this is something you're drawn to and you should write about things you're drawn to and investigate, you know, why you feel like you belong in a place that you've never really lived in or, or experienced before in this particular way. Well, before we get into the characters and some of the interesting background, because there is some history in the book, mm-hmm. what Westerns do you remember growing up with? And did you ever read Westerns? I didn't read Westerns myself, but my grandfather, like all good European kids, read Karl May, who was, I don't know if that's how we used to pronounce it, Karl May, but I think it may be Karl May here. He used to read Karl May, and also I believe Zane Grey and and Louis L'Amour. But you watched movies. Do you remember the movies that just turned you on that were Westerns? Were they John Ford movies? They were not. I remember watching Once Upon a Time in the West, yeah, and just being bowled over, you know. And there was something really wonderful about how slowly that film 
develop the meticulousness with which scenes in that film sort of draw out tension and take their time and create the sense of atmosphere I felt must be very, I realized then must be this very languid nod to the way life really did, you know, play out at the time. <laughs> What's funny, of course, is that these were spaghetti westerns mm -hmm. that were filmed in Spain, Spain with yeah. an Italian director. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I remember, I remember the landscape and being like, "Wow, this is only this could only be America." And it um, wasn't. And it wasn't. <laughs> so, so, but to see it for real in real life and experience that vastness, and to feel so very small and so very humbled by the landscape, I think was was a life changing experience for me. And the other element that plays a role in Inland is magic realism. Mm -hmm. And you've said that one of your favorite authors was Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that there is something, at least for me, that quite aligns with the idea of magical realism when it comes to the West. I mean, obviously, it's, it's sort of it made its way into the book. But when I started researching the history, this particular history, and really started contending every day with how turbulent it was and, and, and how violent and how unstable life was for, for everybody, politically, culturally, physically, psychologically, and emotionally. It struck me that this turbulence and violence that affects the living must also affect the dead inherently. I felt that when I was there, you know, it, it felt very spiritually turbulent. There's no other way to put it. And that I know how that sounds, but I, I knew that I wanted to write about that and it really made its way into the book. So you sat down and began thinking about it. You began researching it. There are two threads in mm -hmm. the story that, of course, at some point they will come together. These two threads, one of which concerns a woman, Nora Lark, on a single day in Arizona Territory in 1893, mm -hmm. and the other concerns an immigrant named Lori, not his real name, <laughs> who has a background, if not like yours, very similar to yours. Sure. We follow him over a course of, I think, 30 years oh, or 40, 40 years. Where did these two strands come from? And did you know that it was always going to be those two strands? So after writing a Western that didn't quite succeed on the page and putting it away in an attempt to sort of let it percolate a little bit, I came across this podcast um, called Stuff You Missed in History Class, which is perfect for nerds like me who love to sort of devote themselves to small and obscure facts and learn these little nuggets and nooks and crannies of history. And this particular episode told the story of something called the Red Ghost, which was a 1890s Arizona campfire tale. In this particular instance, featuring two women who are beset on their homestead by an inexplicable quadruped, by a monstrous quadruped, which may or may not have supernatural provenance. And the podcast then went on to link this quite famous, at the time, campfire tale to the Camel Corps, the United States Camel Corps. Which, if you don't know, and many people don't, and I certainly didn't when I first heard the story, was an experiment, was part of an experiment to bring camels over from the Ottoman Empire to serve as pack animals in the American Southwest during the exploration before the Civil War. 
And I couldn't believe I had been researching various folklores and and sort of these small regional histories for a really long time. And I absolutely couldn't believe that I'd never heard this before. And the image really, really struck me. And so when I started to write it, it was really, really clear that that what I wanted to access in the writing process was the surprise that I felt at learning this information. And uh, possibly even in, in the way I, uh, I experienced it when, when, I, when I learned the information. So it was history set the narrators. It had to be this homesteading woman on her ranch during this particularly turbulent day that was only ever going to end one way with the encounter that actually started the and then the journey of this creature and the history behind it. So the, the other narrator had to, had to have a relationship with the animal. So you set aside the other manuscript. It wasn't quite working. Yeah. Did elements of that manuscript find their way into this? Not really. I had been researching range wars. And so that was something that, that sort of naturally made its way in. But I think that it's, it's quite difficult to write about any cattle country at the time and not have a range war in it. <laughs> Did you see uh, Heaven's Gate? Yeah. I had seen that movie long, long, long ago, which is odd because it's a super inappropriate movie to watch right. for, a young, for a young person. And then I hadn't realized that it was about the Johnson County War, but I remember reading then, researching the Johnson County War and realizing there's elements of this that feel really familiar. Why? And then making the, making the connection. <laughs> okay. So you've got your two ideas Let's tackle Laurie first. Sure. Okay, so you knew that you were going to bring in the Camel Corps, and you knew that that part of it was going to be based on history. Where did you come up with this individual character who is kind of a thief and a murderer, but he's not really a bad guy? Yeah, he's trying really, really hard not to be a bad guy and, and to sort of grapple with, with, um, with everything that his past has meant. When I first started crafting Lurie, um, I think character backgrounds are, are, are odd because I enjoy writing them very much, but I always write them with the aim of not having them end up in the book. You know, I, I, I sort of have this notion of, of how I'm going to, you know, uh, construct it as an iceberg and 90% and of it will be invisible, but like then I'll let the 10% that really, really matters. You don't have to map the whole thing for, for, for everybody. But with, with Lurie, his childhood felt so significant um, to understanding who he is as a character and particularly to understanding his relationships with the dead because he can he can see the dead it's something that first happens to him when he's uh, a young boy he's been orphaned his father who brought him over from the ottoman empire has died and he is now in the care of this coachman who you know runs a hearse company um and the two of them are basically resurrectionists they they they're grave robbers and um he robs a grave and sees the man in the coffin on the street several days later and the man sees him and talks to him as if they've been talking this whole time um and after that he's able to see the dead there's a kind of rules for the dead that they can't see each other did that come from anywhere or is that Tia Obrecht. That happened. There's a scene in which Lurie realizes that sort of toward the middle of the book, and that sort of just found its way onto the page. Because his conflict, Lurie's conflict all his life, he's running from this marshal, and that's how he ends up joining the, the Camel Corps. And the tension in his life always is 
will he run or will he stay? And the the pursuit of this marshal, which I think he sometimes imagines to be a lot more pressing than it actually is, is really the engine that runs his whole life and, and the way he operates, uh, which is to pick up stakes and leave and pick up stakes and leave. In the moment that he realizes the dead can't see each other, he sees a group of them for the first time, and they're all looking at him, and they're looking at his camel burke, but they're not looking at each other, and he realizes that they're alone. And I think that there's nothing more terrifying to Lurie than the notion of eternal solitude. He's managed to avoid it, and his whole life has been about avoiding it, and he realizes that should he fall under the wrong terms according to these rules that you referenced, his fate will be to wander really alone. And I think it terrifies him. <laughs> and that's pretty much just came as you were writing it. Yeah. Not a big deal. Yeah. Creating his voice, because he's first person. Mm -hmm. uh, the other section is close third, but this first person, did that voice come to you easily? It did not. That was a difficult voice to to figure out because uh, I, I I mapped out the story Lurie's story first because I knew that it had to span these these forty years that you were talking about and I wanted to know what what happened in those forty years to get him to the end to this meeting at the end. At first, it was in third person and it was sort of third person distant, and I was trying to figure out what his need was for telling this story, where he was telling the story from. That took two or three drafts of just his uh, his narrative thread to work out. You know, there was sort of the the template, which was just the outline. And it was like, okay, well, like this happens, then this happens. Um, but I don't really know who he is. And I don't really understand his relationship to the story itself. And then it became clear to me that he would have to be telling the story to Burke, to his camel Burke, because he's trying to, you know, for perhaps the thousandth time, encourage Burke to keep going, to keep running. And when I realized why in this particular instance he was urging that it made the whole thing click and then i had to rewrite it again <laughs> well by then you knew that from the ending and you were able to go back and yeah. figure that out there's a little spoiler there which is that we don't really know who he's talking to for quite a while that's right <laughs> i never know whether to reveal it but i feel like this is a very in-depth interview about the plot itself yeah in the first chapter he's referring to sort of a nameless you a nameless second person who's who's there and and you don't figure out until later on in the book and since you always knew from the beginning there would be Nora, mm -hmm. Lark, and all of that, all of which takes place on a single day, which meant a lot of backstory because mm -hmm. characters who don't actually appear in the book are major characters in yeah. the book. Um, and that's very close third person. I guess you did that because you didn't want two single first person. Yeah, I did. But also I did it because Nora was a – tricky perspective to write but but she came much more easily than than Lurie on paper because I knew from the beginning that so much of the book had to be about her confidence in her own point of view and that her point of view at certain crucial moments was going to have to be mistaken about outcomes possibilities politics society all kinds of things but crucially that she wasn't going to be able to see certain things and that if it were in the first person the reader wouldn't have that little gap between the narrative consciousness and the the authorial voice 
to slip into and realize that there there might be more going on than meets the eye. And it was really, really crucial. So that was a craft decision. You mentioned just now that you could do this thing with third person. I'm trying to understand why somehow it helps to have that close third person specifically so that you can, because I was able to, you can get the reader to see more than mm -hmm. Nora's seeing. How do you do that? I think you have to trust the reader. I think that if you indicate, if you plant moments in the narrative that signal a pattern of a particular behavior, a particular reaction in the character, the reader will begin to recognize them as uh, truths about the character. And so for third person, it's instrumental to not conscripting the reader fully into the, the character's mind so that they don't have any room to question the perspective. Does that make sense? What I see is that what happens with the Lurie sections is they're very dense. And because he's got a distinctive 1840s of voice, you kind of can stumble a little when you're reading through it. Mm -hmm. Whereas with Nora, it's a more modern voice mm -hmm. because it's third person, it's omniscient narrator. And also any first person narration, the narrator, you don't necessarily have to trust the narrator. Yeah. Whereas third person, you kind of have to trust the omniscient narrator. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And and there's something in that omniscience, I think, that can nod to, that can wink at the reader, however slightly, and invite them in, you know, to investigate the truths and falsehoods of this character who's laid out before them. She gets involved in the politics of the era, and her family does as well. Did you chart out what actually happened to the members of her family who were never present? I charted it out. In the first draft, it wasn't so clear to me. But then by the second draft, it became very necessary to do where you, you have this built-up world that you can reference, and you have to be able to reference it accurately, and those references have to be consistent. So it, it became very necessary to know precisely down to the hour, you know, what had happened and where and how and what the distances were and, and, and that kind of thing. And you can, you can see it in the opening line of the book. The opening line of the book is, when those men came down to the fording place last night, I thought it's done for. Did you like her husband, Emmett? I did like Emmett. Um, I thought he was a bit full on. I think he didn't always recognize the freedom that he had and the cost of his decisions. The things that Nora wasn't aware of, he was aware of, and the things that he wasn't aware of, Nora was aware of. And between the two of them, I think if there had been a little bit more uh, earnest communication, they might have had the whole picture together. <laughs> now, it takes place in the town, fictional town of Margo. Mm -hmm. is, is that specifically situated in your brain in a particular part of Arizona? Yeah, it's situated sort of vaguely near Sedona, kind of between Phoenix and, and, and Sedona. What's the difference between a camel and a dromedary? Uh, a Bactrian camel has two humps and lives in sort of uh, colder climates often. And a dromedary is uh, sort of typically what you think of as, as the, uh, the Arabian camel. They're, they're taller, they're faster, they have one hump. And these are all dromedaries? Some were brought over, some Bactrians were brought over as well. Um, they feature very, very slightly, but Burke is a dromedary. 
I was told before we started the interview that you originally handed in a 1,400-page manuscript. Is that true? It wasn't one 1,400-page manuscript. I threw 1,400 pages of manuscripts away. <laughs> I was trying to do the math of, of how much writing I had done to get to the place where I started writing inland, and I was able to, to make the calculation. And it was both frightening, but there was also a, a little bit of... um. There was a little bit of triumph to it because I thought, oh, see, you know, it's not that I, I haven't written anything. I've been writing all this. I just haven't shown it to anyone. <laughs> I think there was a a huge iceberg of knowledge that was based on ha having written those books. Um, but n no scenes made it over. You know what did make it over, though? That book also had a character in it named Marion Crace, a very, very different character. But I really liked the name and I wanted to use it. I liked writing it. I don't know why. <laughs> uh, he's the villain. <laughs> he's the villain. He's, he's, he's the big Western villain. He's the cattle baron. One of the pleasurable and also frustrating things about a Western is this idea, a, a classic Western, you know, of old, is this idea of ciphers. You know, we're all here to play our part. Without us, the, the, the narrative collapses. Um, we don't have to be particularly well-developed, but here I come with my doctor's briefcase or, you know, with my big mustache. And I wanted Nora to have these three visitors, all men, and I wanted them to be, you know, to, to, to basically ride in from the, the stereotypical Western, to have real stakes in the story and to have really serious psychological and emotional motivations for their interactions with her that are often very self-centered. Self I wanted everybody to be looking to their own interests. What was the point of having a young son with one eye? I think sight in this book came to play a really, really big role. Toby having an injured eye wasn't something that I planned out. It was just present in the first the first chapter I wrote was Nora and Toby down in the gulch, which is the opening chapter of, of uh, Nora's storyline. And, uh, and he just had this injured eye. And the character of Josie is kind of an orphan who has been adopted by the family, and she also sees ghosts, kind of. Yeah, she claims to be a um, – she's the child of, of New York mesmerists, um, and she claims to have a, a special ability to commune with the dead. Uh, which drives Nora crazy because everybody in town is, is you know, head over heels for this girl and her abilities. And, and they're really throwing themselves uh, at her feet uh, in order to, to commune with their loved ones. And Nora finds it very frustrating and sort of beneath her. At the same time, she's carrying on a conversation of 17 years long with the imagined ghost of her dead daughter who who passed as a child but she's very in control of this conversation you see she she's insistent to herself all the time that it that it's imagined she knows she's imagining it doesn't quite know it because she asked josie if she's imagining it right uh, what prompted you to write that that scene is, is is crucial to the so throughout the book you know nora is insistent on this on this notion and i think one of the great pleasures of, of writing nora was this notion of, of having to dwell in this third person perspective right behind her and then only see the truth revealed when she felt like reflecting on a particular moment that showed weakness or error. 
So there's a moment after the telephone comes to the neighboring town where she and Harlan Bell, who is this sheriff with whom she has a, a sort of a profound emotional connection, are talking about technological advancements uh, of the era and how he has seen you know, the wire come through. He's seen the, the telegraph come through and now there's this telephone and, and who knows what truths of the world technology will reveal that we find to be impossible. And it shakes her because she realizes that maybe Josie has simply breached this technological barrier with the dead and that she actually can talk to them. And maybe Nora's been talking to them this whole time. Maybe Nora has been talking to the real ghost of her daughter. And I think it really helps her reinforce for just a brief moment how significant it is for her to remain in this house, how much she really believes that the ghost of her daughter inhabits this house and can't be left behind. But she's going to have to leave at some point because the entire town is vanishing and there's no water. That's right. That's right. If things go wrong in ways that she thinks she might still be able to control, she'll have to leave. The whole family will have to leave. Emmett will decide that it's time to go and they'll go. Taya Obrecht, in terms of writing and themes, do you ever think about what you're trying to send or or from your perspective it is is it almost always just I'm telling a story? It always starts with them telling a story. But this story, hearing this true history and this yarn and the way they meet in a particular historical context and moment, this meeting that happens, I found deeply, deeply stirring. And I, I didn't know why. And I wanted to understand why it had it had struck me so much. I wanted to be able to tell myself the story. And 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 you're right. Like I think that for me it always starts with I would like to know the story of them. But I, I think that what I'm always also trying to work out, and I think that the ghosts really tip to this, is is this question of the human need to scoff at mysticism while at the same time really, really clinging to it in, in moments of distress or despair. My writing's always grappling with that somehow. There's also some political element in terms of a woman's role and all of that, but that's sort of embedded in whatever story you're going to tell if it's in a historical. Sure, absolutely. And I think that in this case in particular, you know, I, I was talking to my grandmother. I had been talking to my grandmother a lot right as I started writing this book a little bit before. She was on her deathbed. She had been ill for a very long time. And she was filled with rage. She was so angry at the end of her life about a lot of things that had happened to her as a younger woman and a lot of things that she had had to endure. And I realized from our conversations that she had always carried this anger. It wasn't that it was suddenly cropping up because she was older now and, and letting it loose. It was that her age was finally permitting her to bring down the barriers between us and her innermost thoughts. And I think that really made its way into Nora a lot. Nora is very present with her rage all the time. That is her primary. The, the first veil through which she passes on her way to any reaction is just this wash of rage. And then it's with her as she goes out. And I think, I, yeah, I wanted to think about female rage and its social unacceptability and how much of it there really is and how little uh, we hear about it. And that came from your grandmother. Yeah, yeah I think so. Are there camels in the southwest now? I don't know of any. So camels live a shockingly long time. The last of the 
camels affiliated with this particular episode of history supposedly died in, I think, the Los Angeles Zoo in the 1930s or maybe even the 1940s. I, I'll have to check that. I should know this by heart. The camel experiment failed. It was a failure within within the span of a couple of years. And then the army was like, what are we going to do with all these camels? You know, they, they're rowdy. They smell bad. And most importantly, they make the other livestock crazy. They make the uh, the other pack animals wild. So they were auctioned off and sold off and they worked in mines and uh, in circuses and stuff. But some of them were just sort of freed and they roamed around the deserts and they had these encounters like the campfire tale where they would just sort of appear in some populated area. And people who had no idea what this animal was would report, you know, seeing a huge red horse, huge, hairy red horse. What is this? You know, and it's fascinating, I think, the way that they they passed into these very small specific legends and among you know native tribes too who were in the area at the time have stories about you know their grandparents eating camel hunting and eating camel um these very 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 slight personal stories that that just you know are jewels in this huge picture that we don't talk about <laughs> Taya Obrecht Tiger's Wife got good reviews. This one's getting rave reviews. Have you had any interest from Hollywood on turning these into movies or miniseries? Yeah, there's been some some conversation. You know, it, it's always really, really interesting to hear people talk about the kind of transformation that would have to happen from one medium to another. The novel is relies so much on interiority and so much on this one, you know, this individual relationship with its reader. And so I'm I'm always very interested to hear the ideas that people have about, you know, making something visual out of it for communal experience. Taya Obrecht, now you've written and published Inland Inland. You submitted the manuscript several months ago, which means you might be working on something else. I am, actually. I am working on a, uh, it's it's kind of a desert island story. Do you have a plan on going back and writing more about your home countries? I think it's always going to be something that I write about in, in some way, because I think I'm always coming to terms one way or another with what it means to come from a country that doesn't exist anymore. And also I emigrated so many times from so many different places and feel sort of always a little bit unstable everywhere you arrive, I think is, is always going to be inherent to what I'm writing because I'm, I'm always grappling with, with myself and it just sort of shoots out, you know, it finds, it finds the outlet and it just breaches the dam. So uh, yeah, I think so in that sense, I think I'll always be writing about my home countries. Lurie, the character, yeah. in that sense, is you. I found a lot of affinity with Lurie, but I also found a lot of affinity with Haji Ali, who was based on, on a real historical figure. He was a camelier who came over, a Syrian Greek who converted to Islam before he left the Ottoman Empire. And he has a lot of questions about empire itself and feels very displaced. You've been listening to an interview with Taya Obrecht, whose latest novel is Inland. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>